1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Uh, we've been walking through this sermon series on assurance, looking at how can we know that we know. Now, there's a couple of reasons I think it's important that we spend some time in 1 John and talk about an, an assurance, how we can know that we have eternal life. One reason is out of pastoral concern. I'm, I'm, I have a, a fear that a lot of people maybe have a false assurance of their salvation. You've been around God, you've been around church. I mean, he tells us in Matthew, he says that one day that many are gonna stand before him and he's gonna say, depart from me for I never knew you. And they, he said their response to that is gonna be, but hang on, I prophesied in your name. And he's gonna say, yeah, even the demons in hell know my name. A knowledge about God is different than having a relationship with him. And so at a pastoral concern, Billy Graham, after going and preaching all over the world and being in many churches said, they believe that some 50 to 75% of those who are in the church don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's a concern, all right? The last thing that we want to do is, is just kind of keep going along our way and comfortably uh, leading people uh, toward hell. We don't want to do that. So we want to make sure that we have an assurance. But secondly, because I don't believe you can grow deeper, uh, that you can grow more mature in your faith and in your pursuit of the Lord without an assurance of your salvation. It is in, in that assurance that we get to grow deeper. There's substantial growth that happens when we know that we have a personal relationship with the Lord. You know, it's kind of like sometimes hanging out with students. They'll, they'll kind of start talking to a boy, they'll start talking to a girl, and, and I'll kind of notice it, and I'll pick on them a little bit. And you don't know, is like this a youth camp fling, or, uh, or is this like for real? Are they like, are they like dating, or, or like talking, or, or now like chatting, or whatever you say? And then you ask them, like, hey man, like, you know, what are y'all? And he's like, man, I don't know. Like, what? You don't know. Does she know? I don't know what she knows. I just know we like talk a lot and hang out. So I, then I ask him this question. Well, let me ask you this. What, how would you feel if this weekend she went, you know, like to the movies with another guy? Oh, no, that ain't okay. Does she know that that's not okay? I think she knows that that's not okay. But, well, right now, how would she feel if you went, like, to the movies with another girl? Oh, no, she, no, that wouldn't go. So, like, what does that mean y'all are? And at the point of this conversation, the guy normally realizes, like, uh, I probably should define this relationship. I probably, like, we probably need to know, like, where we are. And she probably needs to know, like, where we are. It's important for us to define the relationship we have with God. I realize some of you are here today, and you're thinking, you know what, I don't, I don't like labels and terms and all that stuff. There is something, there's a confidence that grows out of us knowing that we have a personal relationship with God. Listen to what he says in 1 John chapter 2. Now, I, I debated on how to handle this because I was going to originally preach from verses 12 to verse 17. But as I began to walk through it, I really just want to preach on, on a few verses today uh, out, of, out of reason I think is important. Uh, so let me just read them and explain a little bit why. He says this in 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 15. He says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Now, uh, today what I want us to look at, we've looked at how we can have an assurance 
in our relationship with God based off having a, an assurance of our experience with God, based off our love for other people. Today, we're going to look at how we can have an assurance based off our love for the Father. How we can know that the love that we have to the Father is a direct result of God's saving grace in our life. But I want to rest on these few verses primarily because I, I've seen these exact verses taken out of context so many times where I've heard TV evangelists or guest preachers and, and, and different guys take this, big, this text and, and let me kind of give you a phrase here. They cherry pick it. Cherry pick it is where you can take certain verses out of the Bible and you take it out of context. Let me explain context for a second. When you read the Bible, when we preach through scriptures, we're to preach them and you're to read it in context of the whole letter. Has anybody ever had somebody maybe eavesdrop in on a conversation that you're having and they only heard one sentence that you were saying and they went on to say, oh, well, you're saying this or this and you're like, yeah, no. You didn't listen to my whole conversation. Anybody out there? Yep, yep. All right, a few guys rose their hand. Ladies were like, I'm not raising my hand right now. You know that's happened, all right? You, somebody heard just a little bit and now they've made a judgment call based off that one passage, that one phrase. This verse is taken out of context a lot, a lot. And I would say this verse is probably taken out of context more in the religious Southeast maybe than in other areas. So I wanted to take a moment this morning and let's just expose these verses as we think through what God is teaching us about how the love of the Father displays that we have a, a personal relationship with the Lord. Now, it starts off confusing because in verse 15 he says, do not love the world. Now, what's the most popular Bible verse in the Bible in, in the world? John 3, 16, for God so loved the And now he's telling us, do not love the world. So you're like, okay, hang on. So God can love the world, but I'm not supposed to love the world? How do I not love the world? And it's confusing how we think about it. And this is why this verse is often cherry-picked. Because pastors or, or whoever's speaking has an agenda or they have a thought on a certain issue, and this is the verse that they kind of use as the ammunition to say, see, you should listen to what I'm saying because he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. But then he goes on to say, if, you, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The whole verse, this whole passage, is about how we can know that the love of the Father is in us. How we know that we have a relationship with God because, well, the love of God is in us. Now, let me just start off by saying what this verse is not saying. Let me tell you what he's not telling you. He is not saying that if we, we don't want to love the world, so we hate all forms of social structures. I don't like any government or any leadership structure at all. Like, we should hate the government. We should hate any structure of it. This is not my home. I live in heaven. I live in his kingdom, so I don't have to live by social structure rules. I'm not of this place. So some people take this text and be like, see, you should hate the government. You should hate all the forms of it. And so you would say things like this. I'm not going to pay my taxes. I'm not going to follow those rules. Like, who are you to tell me how I'm supposed to live? God is my king and I follow him. Now, forget all the other passages of scriptures that tell us that we should render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. That we are to live in the world, but not of it. And so what happens is somebody would say something like this, well, I just hate the government. I hate all the structures. And you've heard people speak using this verse telling you, that's right, rebel and fight the system. And, and I would say there's, a, a, there's enough young people coming up today who think they have a better idea of how things should go structurally, and you're missing the point. 
God never intended this world to be saved through a social structure. We don't need, nor do we desire the government to save America. Jesus came and lived and died, and we know that ultimate salvation will only be in Jesus. So you might say, well, here's the verse. I can hate the government and everything in it. Others might say, well, listen, I'm supposed to hate culture. I should hate the culture. Uh, a lot of people taking this verse out of context, and they hate different things that are culturally popular at the moment. Let me give you maybe a, a few ways that somebody has, has said Man, you, you can hate the culture and, and use this verse to do it. I promise you, this will probably get a few years' attention. You've heard someone say something like this, rock and roll is of the devil. Anybody ever heard somebody say that? It's like of the devil. All right, all the students are like, I've heard somebody say that. Like rock and roll is of the devil. Maybe you've heard it said like this, if you play rock and roll near a plant, like the plant will die right there, just like psh, fade. Right, rock and roll just kills it. It's like the devil's choice in, in music, and it's like what he listens to. And so what happens is they say something like this, rock and roll is of the devil, so you can't listen to it. You can't listen. Now, here's what we know about music. Whether you like rock and roll or not, you've probably heard somebody make that statement. Do you think that there are areas of rock and roll that are not pleasing to the Lord? Yeah, probably. Uh, we know so. What about country music? Any areas of country music that are not pleasing to the Lord? Yeah, probably so. Yep. What about, uh, what about like opera? Any opera? I don't know. I, I wouldn't know. I'll trust you. I have no clue what they're saying in, in opera. I don't know if it's pleasing the Lord or not. All right. What about like polka? Anybody polka out there? Any versions of polka that are probably not pleasing to the Lord? Yes. See, the intentions are that music in every form would bring honor and glory to God. Now, there are versions of every strand or every form of music that is unpleasing to the Lord, just like other things in our culture. Things like art. Are there areas of art that are not pleasing to God? Absolutely. Are there other areas of art that are beautiful and God gave people to use that part of their brain to create art for the glory of God? Yes, absolutely. Now, would I ever tell you, you should avoid every form of art because it is of this world? And you should hate everything in the world. So you should hate art. Now personally, if you bring me to an art museum, I'm probably going to hate it. Because I don't understand any of that. The Lord did not give me the gift of interpretation when it comes to art. I'm like, there's some paint on a piece of fabric over there. Great job, I think. That's just not my language there, okay? Sorry, Stacy, I haven't brought her to an art museum many times in my life, okay? Now, some of you, though, might say you've heard this verse, so say things like this. You've maybe heard people say something like this using this verse. There should be a difference from those who love Jesus and those who are in the world, and you use this verse. There should be a difference. And normally, what's following that is something like this. You should be different. You should dress different. So if you are a female, you should dress different because you are not, you should hate everything in the world. So you should wear something that's completely covering every portion of your body and maybe cover your face and, and you can't wear pants. Maybe somebody have heard that before. Ladies, go to church, you, you can't wear pants. And some of you are like, what? I haven't heard that one. Just hang on, all right? You've, you've used verses like this. They say there should be a difference. But here's what's happened. Here's the problem. If you say something like this, you shouldn't listen to that style of music because we should be different, then what you're saying, typically following that, is that Jesus doesn't like that style of music. Jesus likes my style. 
Like, if he was picking a version, he would pick mine. And it's not the way that somebody is playing. It's that it's meant to be worship and to the Lord. You can't say, well, I think you should be different. You shouldn't be like this, but you should be like this. What you're doing is you're elevating your way. Don't worry. Hang on. I'm going to explain it even more. I've heard it said in all different types of ways. Christian people, you have to be so different. Jacob, you're a pastor. You can't have a beard. Jesus had a beard. Jesus wore a beard. But some of you, you've heard that as a pastor, you're supposed to be like clean shaven and you can't have anything on your face. Or maybe some of you have heard, hey, if you're a guy and you love Jesus, you can't have long hair right? because you can't be like other people in the world. Or, or you've heard all of these ways you should be different. So how do we take this context and this passage where he tells us that we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves? So how then do we interpret this passage in, in saying, Lord, we want to love you and we do live in this world. So what does it mean? Here's what we know. We know for a fact it doesn't mean that we should hate the culture and hate the world and, and the people that are in it because God so loved the world that he gave himself up. He sent his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God died for the world and the sins of the world. So how do we do this? What's he talking about? Well, he's going to, in the verse following that, verse 16, he's going to tell us, for everything in the world, now he's going to define it. Here's what I'm talking about. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions, or the pride of life. He says, I'm going to describe and explain to you why this is important, how we should not love the world. The word lust is a word, iputhmia, and it means this, a desire that has taken too much weight in your life that it controls you. Lust is something that has taken something from your life, too much out of your life, that now it is controlling. So this is a good thing that has become a God thing and is now a bad thing. It's something that's good that you make bad. It's something that has too much control on your life. It doesn't mean that it shouldn't be a part of your life, but when you give it too much weight, too much control, it takes over your life. So let's walk through the three areas here that he's given us that we should think through and that he's gotten us. First of all, lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh. This is something good that God created that you feel like you cannot live without. This is something good God created that it has now become controlling and you feel like you can't live without it. Something that your flesh is telling you, you long for and that you have to have it. it it's, it's taken too big of a priority. Let me give you an easy example. I think we can all get in grass, something like sex. This is something that is good, something that God created, and it's meant to be within the confines of a married man and a married woman. He created it, it is there, it is good, but what can happen is, some would say, you know what? Nobody's gonna tell me how I'm gonna live my life, so I'm going to enjoy it how and when I want. I don't really care what God says. So what happens is it becomes now a controlling lust in your life, that you are, it's guiding you, and it's not a part of your life where you're guiding in a way that is honoring to the Lord, in a way that, that leads them. The reality is we see this today in our culture in every way. I mean, let's be honest, sex is used to sell everything. Everything. I mean, you're watching a commercial today, which I like to record so I don't have to watch any commercials. Can I get an amen? I love my DVR. That thing is like a gift from God. I don't have to watch any of them. I don't even know any commercials. But commercials are ridiculous. They sexualize everything because they believe sex sells. It is a lust of the flesh 
It's a dominating, guiding thing in our culture. I mean, they can be like selling roach spray, and all of a sudden somebody's coming out in like a skippy outfit spraying for roaches. If you go buy roach spray because you saw a commercial where somebody was in a skimpy outfit and you're like, oh, that's the one I'm going to buy. First of all, that's just straight ridiculous, all right? That is, that is crazy. But it's the way our culture works because our culture is guided by a lust of the flesh. Something that God created good is now a controlling element in our culture today, in our society. So for us, we live in the world, but we live not of it. We don't live according to the lust of our flesh. Our culture, it teaches our girls to dress in a way that highlights their sexuality. And you should dress in a way, if you want to be fashionable, you dress in a way that highlights that because you're selling yourself and you're trying to attract a, a guy in, search, in a certain way. And I get it. For some of you, you try to buy outfits or certain clothing and it becomes increasingly difficult in a world and a culture that is centered on a lust of the flesh. So you sometimes, the ladies, feel like you have a choice. Am I going to be fashionable and dress in a way that fashionably is going to be not in a way that pleases God? Or do I sometimes make a less fashionable choice and choose to be a, maybe a little less more unfashionable but in a way that honors God? It's difficult. But your love of the Father guides you in this and you can still find a way to be as fashionable as possible in a way that honors the Lord. Because you're not driven by your lust of the flesh, you're driven by your love for God. This is a way that the lust of the flesh would guide us. So how do we live in it and not of it? He says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh. Secondly, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes is when we see something in the world that is so important to you that you can't live without it. This is something that now is visibly that you see that now it has become something so dominant in your life that you can't live without that thing. This is where jealousy comes into play. You're, you're jealous of what somewhere else, someone else has. And so now you're living to kind of keep up with what they have. This can play and show in, in many aspects of our life. Maybe you're here today and, and you look at someone else's family and you say, I tell you what, I'm jealous of their family. I want what their family looks like. They've got the white picket fence and their kids are all like well-behaved and all put together and everything. They look like they're always, everything's just perfect. And so you begin to be frustrated in your own family because you want your family to look like that family. Or maybe for you, it's not even how your family is, but you look at someone else's kids and you go, man, I wish my kids could do what their kids could do. This, you see one child hit a baseball 400 feet and you say, I want my child to hit a baseball 400 feet. And the lust of your eyes now begins to dominate your mind and you are pulled too hard, too strong in such a way that you can't live without trying to make the thing that you have seen happen. You say, well, I don't think I struggle with that. I don't really think that that would be that difficult for me. Well, here's what we know for a fact. We know that, the, uh, that in America, the average American family is in so much debt that if something happened this week in an emergency level, they would not be able to cover that emergency because they live in such debt. You say, well, what is driving debt? What drives debt is our lust of the eyes. We see something that we have to have. Do y'all know why in a 30-minute show there's like 14 minutes of commercials? Do you know why? Because the lust of our eyes. They are appealing. How many of you back in the day used to like pick out Christmas presents from the old Sears and Roebuck catalog? Come on, some of you are like, yep. Y'all are like, what is a Sears and Roebuck catalog? 
Some of you are like, what's a catalog? Because let me tell you what replaced the old Sears and Robot catalog. It started off like newspaper ads and, and, and magazines started being mailed out. And then we got something that was like revolutionary called the internet. And now it's all, it's internet based. Do you know right now there's technology on your phones that when you walk by or drive by certain shops or places, your social media will not have their ads on your phone. So you just thought, ladies, that you had a craving to go to Target. Like you just thought that. But you just drove by Target and then you got on Facebook and there's a Target ad on there. And then it gets in your head and you go, you know what, I did need something from Target. So you go into Target to buy two things and after you've spent your entire paycheck later, because visibly you have seen all these things that look amazing that you had to have the rest of the week, you're eating peanut butter jelly sandwiches because you, it was there. That's just not that, guys, what about you? It's not just ladies, this is men. What about you? The newest equipment, the newest stuff, the newest guns, how is all that stuff advertised and sold? Visibly. Social media, marketing, all of these things are geared to our lust of the eyes. We see this. Look, there's a reason that the average church member tithes less than 3% of your annual income. It's not because you don't want to. There's a lot of you that you want to give more. You want to be more generous. You want to give more, but you can't and fulfill the lust of your eyes at the same time. I want certain things. And then that want becomes I have to have that certain thing. And then it gets time to write a tithe check and you go, God, I just don't have it. And God's like, no, you did have it. You absolutely had it. But you spent it on these other 48 things this week instead of being faithful in the areas I've called you to. You say, well, hang on. I don't really think I struggle with the lust of the eyes. Well, I want you to ask yourself, what has given you the mental picture in your head of what things should be like in life? In your mind, you have an idea on what, young people, what you want your husband to look like, your wife to look like, what you want your family to be like, what you want your job to be like. Are you unhappy with your job because your job is bad or because you have a mental picture in your head of what you think your job should be? Are you suffering because you feel like you don't get paid enough? Not because there's actually not enough money written on the check, but in your mind, you have developed what you think it should be based on what you want life to be. Your lust of your eyes can dictate how you think and, and what drives happiness and, and joy. And so he says, be careful in the lust of the eyes. And then lastly, he gives the pride of life. Oh, the pride of life. This is when what you have accomplished becomes something that you take pride in or boast in. Now, before some of you kind of stop there, I know there are some grandparents in this room that when I ask you, tell me about your grandchildren, you haven't got to the Facebook or the social media. You still whip out the wallet that's got like 48 pictures that are going like all the way down the floor. Like, let me tell you about all of them. Right, you're proud, and, and that's a good thing to love them and to care for them. But the pride of life is when we take pride in a way that it becomes now boasting. Let me give you two ways maybe to think about the pride of life. This is when your accomplishments make you think that you are better than someone else. When you actually believe that now what you've accomplished in life puts you on a pedestal above other people. Well, look at what we've accomplished. Look at where we live. Look at what neighborhood that we're in. Look at what we have. Look at what toys we have. Look at what my kids have accomplished. Look, let me tell you how this would kind of go about, maybe in a discussion. This would be something like this. This might be the reason for some of you, you might start a discussion about your children when somebody asks you, well, how are your kids? Oh, well, you know, my son's a doctor, and he's doing great. And you're, 
in your mind, you're just, you maybe are proud of your son, but now the proudness of your son has become pride, and now you feel elevated as a parent because you feel great in your accomplishments through your children. That's why when you get on social media and maybe your child hits a home run, you're not just excited about your child. Man, I'm so excited my kid hit a home run. It's now, I'm so excited for my child. He's hit his league-leading 38th home run in T-ball this year. He's amazing. I'm so proud of you, son. What you're really saying is, I am so proud in my ability to raise up a boy that can hit more home runs than your son. Take it. That's right. T-ball, baby. Atlanta Braves, here I come. I'm like, nah, bro, it's just T-ball. I remember uh, in middle school, when we started middle school ball, seventh grade, I was so pumped for middle school ball, and I went out and we began tryout, and all of a sudden I realized there's about four boys. There were about four boys that had reached their full-grown status as men in seventh grade. <laughs> They've got facial hair and goatees, and I'm like, what? in the world, they talk to me like, hey, Jacob, and I'm like, ha, ha, hey. I was so scared and intimidated, and they're hitting bombs. And coach said, son, you just keep playing, you just keep practicing. All right, don't worry, things will happen. And you know what? Things happen. And now they live their greatest life as a seventh grader. They haven't grown another inch since seventh grade. By eighth grade, we caught them. See, some of you, you have put your pride in your life in accomplishments and things that the world sees as valuable. And now, as a result, you feel like, man, I'm actually better than other people because of what I've accomplished. You know, there's a second way, though, and that is that you now, because you've made certain accomplishments in your life, your things make life so stable that you feel like you have nothing more to worry about. I'm not really sure I need God anymore. I mean, I've... I've accumulated enough wealth that my life feels safe and secure. Whatever comes at me tomorrow, I feel like I can handle it. I mean, look at what I've accomplished. Look at where I've gotten in life. Look at what I've done. So now when you look forward into the future, the reality is it's set up without God. Because deep down in your mind, you really are not sure that you need him. Now let me say this loud so everyone hears me. This is a great danger for the American citizen. We are so blessed. God has given us so much. We have so many things that we can actually begin to believe that the things that we've accomplished has built a cushion that now we don't need God in these certain areas. And that is the pride of life. You have elevated your ability to protect your future and your safety and what you think might come. And it only takes in a split second for you to realize how big God is and how small we really are. This is when your confidence in the future comes from you and not from God. It only takes a really fast housing bubble to pop. It only takes a really fast financial market to crash for us to see how much we desperately need God each and every day. Matter of fact, this is how he ends 1 John. Look with me in chapter five, verse 20. The words will be on the screen. He says, then we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one and we are in the true one. This is the son of Jesus Christ. This is his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in his life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. My little children, if you are a worshiper, if you have a relationship with God, allow your love for the Father to guard your life from idolatry. He ends it by saying, be careful. See, idolatry is when you love something more than God. 
It's when you depend on something more than God. It's when you obey something more than God. It's when a good thing becomes a God thing and turns into a real bad thing. Because you've elevated those things over God. Maybe some questions you should think of is, is what do you love the most in life? Like what commands your obedience? What dominates your thought life? Mentally, are you dominated by your children, financial security, or money, status? Are those things dominating your mind? Or, like the, the psalmist says, are you meditating on the Word of God day and night? Are you thinking about God and His truth and what He has for your life? Quickly, I'm going to give you three things back to back to back, real fast, that I think John wants us to learn from this passage. Three things I think John has for us. The first one is this. Idolatry is a love that shows that God is missing. Idolatry is a love that shows up in our life when God is missing. If you're walking through these things and you're saying, hmm, this might be me. The love of the Father might be missing from that area. See, the question is not if we worship. It's what do you worship? What are you giving worship to in your life? Idolatry is kind of like salt water. You can run and you can get exhausted in life and you just want some water to drink to quench your thirst. And you grab a hold of some salt water and you drink it and you drink it and you keep thinking, this is gonna satisfy me, but all it does is dehydrate you and make you more thirsty. Some of you are drinking from an idolatrous well and you think, this is gonna satisfy me. I'm gonna live how I want, do what I want, and it's gonna give me what I want, but it's not. And now you're wondering what's wrong. St. Augustine, he said this, if our hearts are restless, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts will always be restless until we find our rest in Jesus Christ. And this moves to our second point. Jesus overcame the world for us. We overcome by embracing him. The only way that we are free from the love of the world is by embracing the love of the Father, by the Son, through the Spirit. Look, the text tells us that it is in Christ, it is in him that we find freedom. Some of you are thinking, I'll tell you what, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna beat myself up more. I'm gonna try harder. I'm gonna do this, and that will help me get out of this idolatrous stuff, and that's just not what happens. 1 John 5, 4 says, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. But you want victory? You find victory in your faith in Jesus Christ. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. It is in his love that we overcome the world. 1 John 5, 20 says, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding. Why? So that we may know the true one. We are, we are in the true one. That is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. It's in Christ that we find ultimate freedom over this world. You know, the way that we overcome smaller cravings is to replace it with a bigger one. Some of you right now, you have these idolatrous cravings in your life, and, and what our prayer should be is, God, would you replace these smaller cravings with a love from the Father? You see, Jesus is better than money. He's the ultimate supplier of all of our needs. He doesn't dip like a stock market. He's the same today and forever. Jesus is better than earthly pleasure. Earthly, uh, all these earthly pleasures, they're supposed to point us back to our Creator. In his presence, we find there's fullness of joy. Jesus is better than fame. Some of you are seeking that, but who cares about the applause of, of human beings and man when we can know the one that created all men and he loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. Jesus is better than power. He holds and sustains every molecule, atom and neutron, every electron in his hands, and he commands them all for our good 
in his glory. God is better than love. Earthly marriage is just a shadow of the love that we will have ultimately with God forevermore in creation. It is in Christ that we find these things. We overcome the world by embracing the love of Christ. But lastly, we can only love the world when we're free from it. The only way we can love the people in the world and the people who are around us in the world is to be completely free from it. When this is not our home, when these things in the world do not drive us. Think about 1 John 2:17 we read a while ago. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. How do you know that you have an assurance? How can you have an assurance? Well, it's the love of God that guides you and, and keeps you and he helps you to remain in his will forever. So when it comes to all these things of the world and the lust that pull you, what guides you? What's your guiding truth? Is it the love of God? You see, we are so loved by God that we can give up our most precious things that people would know and experience the love of God. 